Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. While in no way supporting the systemic injustices and disparities of mass incarceration, in Gifts from the Dark, Learning from the Incarceration Experience, published by Lexington Books in 2021, Joni Schwartz and John Cheney argue that we have much to learn from those who have been and are in prison. In focusing upon how men and women have chosen the worst moments of their lives as a baseline not to define but to refine themselves, Gifts from the Dark promises to alter the limited mindset of incarceration as a solely one-dimensional deficit event. Joni Schwartz is professor of humanities at the City University of New York, LaGuardia Community College, and adjunct professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice Graduate Studies Program. John Cheney is assistant professor and director of criminal justice programs for the City University of New York, LaGuardia Community College. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to be here. So to get started, I'd like you to give us a little uh, sense of your background and what led you to write this work. Uh, Why don't we start with John? Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, So many different factors came into play that that, uh, inspired me to join with uh, Joni to uh, share with the world some really, really important factors. Uh, my background uh, is very much in, uh, involving both an administrative aspect of uh, how we saw um, this uh, issue or, or, or this uh, message of gift from the dark, also personal. My background involves uh, extensive involvement with the prisoner reentry. Uh, at one point, I was uh, an executive. Uh, Director for the uh, Brooklyn Days Office of Commonwealth Reentry Project, which has, of course, to do with uh, trying to re-socialize men and women who are coming home from prison. And I, uh, I'm, interestingly enough, I actually acquired this position after having uh, been a uh, person who was also incarcerated myself. You know, over a course of uh, up to maybe about five years of. of involvement in in the system. My involvement and my inspiration for joining Joni in sharing with the world Gifts from the Dark is primarily connected with 
my own personal involvement in the criminal justice system, uh, where I was myself incarcerated for a period of years, about four to five years. Um, and interestingly enough, I was given a very, very rare opportunity to um, oversee and to develop a prison reentry program for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. That inspired me also to uh, go into the world of academia and in seeing many of the individuals that I, that, that I encountered while I was in uh, engaged in the uh, prisoner reentry program and plus my personal involvement, I saw some amazing, amazing transformations of individuals who used the horrible experience of prison and, and somehow turned that into an advantage where they were able to really redefine themselves. And Joni, of course, also saw the same thing through her involvement, which she'll tell you about. And this, uh, we put our resources and put our experiences together where we realized that many people just don't understand that uh, people who are in prison actually are able to take that time in their lives and to transform themselves. And this is one of the reasons why I was inspired to uh, join Joni in writing this uh very timely, not this very, very timely text. Uh, thank you for that background, John. We appreciate that. Uh, Joni, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to, to this project? Yes, meeting students who were returned citizens from prison in the classroom, in the college classroom, began my journey in thinking about this. They were some of the best students and deep thinkers, well-read, and then I... Um, was in Queensboro Correctional Facility in New York City, which is a prison across from my college, and I ran a writing group. There, I met prisoners who were uh, prolific writers and readers and scholars, um, organic intellectuals, as we talk about in the book, and that led me to say, wow, this is a side of prisoners and prisons that people don't hear. Right, and you wanted to, to bring that to the public's attention. Yes, right. absolutely. Right, and and John, in the title of the of your book, you uh, you focus on gifts of the darkness. What are the gifts of the darkness that you're referring to? Okay, uh, just in as a point of clarity, we want to make sure that uh, our listeners understand that under no circumstances are we suggesting that prison is a gift. Or a gift from the dark, it, uh, uh, the act, actual act of incarceration. If anything, we're more along the sides of individuals who look at this from a global perspective, and we do see the United States as a system that is in deep, deep need of transformation, deep, deep need of maybe even a dismantling uh, of the whole system and reassessing the methods that we use in response to people who go, you know, run afoul of the law. But having said that, we actually have been able to um, acknowledge and we want to show the world that even have, uh, with having said that, there are individuals who are in our system who are somehow able to hone their skills that they didn't even know that they had, where they find themselves now becoming, as Joni mentioned, deep thinkers that, has, that, that will result in deep reading a better understanding of themselves, a better understanding of how to utilize their time, you know, while they are in the system, and then later on, 
as they leave the system, they, they are able to hone these skills in such a way where once they are back and be socialized within society, that they have major gifts of understanding themselves, redefining themselves as people who can become assets to themselves and to the community. So these are major gifts. These are gifts of writing. These are gifts of uh, of, of, knowing, of getting in tune with their emotional intelligence, getting in tune with, with, their, with their bodies, knowing how to become better family members. These are true gifts that they are able that, that, that they somehow were not able to acquire prior to their in situation with incarceration. And many people who are incarcerated don't actually acquire these gifts. So the people who do, they are very, very special. And these are people who can really, really uh, provide major, major benefits to the community at large. Right. And and to, um, Joni, to kind of... Um... I'm going to ask you to kind of expand on on a point that John already mentioned, which is that your book is talking about the positive outcomes, let's say, from the prison experience. But uh, of course, you uh, and and John are very, um, let's say, uh, uh, um, uh, concerned about you know mass incarceration and the prison phenomenon. So how do you balance these two things? And to to put it in a kind of a fine point, how is is it possible to have gifts or positive things come out of such a terrible place like prison? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, well, and we start the book talking about the tradition and historical perspective. And we talk about people, famous people who have come out of prison and used that experience. So this is not something just contemporary, but it's historical. And we have a long tradition of prison writing, Gromsky, uh, Mandela, uh, Seda Shakur, Frankel. So we go back to Heinz, Chester Heinz, and, and we could name hundreds and hundreds of people who have used the prison experience um, as writers, as scholars, but also as people who have come out and transformed their world. So yes, out of this horrific place, that um, no one should have to go through. Uh, there is a light in the dark. There is this gift in the dark. And um, so, yeah, it's this tension. It's a tension, really. Um, how can out of such horrific situations such amazing people come? But in suffering and in pain, often uh, there are amazing miracles, if you will. So, yeah, it's a balance. It's a tension. And... Um, and uh, we try to straddle that in the book. Right. And I, I just want to highlight again that uh, John has already mentioned that he had personal experience being incarcerated for several years, as well as professional experience dealing with uh, um, uh, post-prison uh, reentry programs. And that, uh, Joni, you also have had years of experience uh, uh, helping, teaching, guiding, um, and through a writing program, uh, people who were incarcerated. So I, I only mention this because because I think that the, you know, some listeners um, who are not familiar with you, you know, personally, when they hear the argument that we're describing, it may sound like a kind of romanticization of prison. Oh, wow, look at this, you know, wonderful thing here. You know, there's this great transformations that occur, you know, uh, 
And it might seem like the people who wrote this book are not in touch with the actual realities of prison. And I want to just highlight that this is very much not the case, that you're neither romanticizing prison and nor are you people who are unaware of the the you know the very uh, concrete and 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 uh, you know real um, uh, violence and 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 um, uh, brutality that exists in prison. You're you're very well acquainted with that, and from that you've come to the insights that you describe in your book. Yes, this is exactly yes. why. This is you're absolutely right, and this is exactly why I prefaced my prior comments with the confirmation that if anything, we want to see huge, huge dismantling and redefining what it means to have corrections in the United States, because it is a, as it stands now, a horrible, horrible situation. We are, if if anything, we're closer in line with those who feel that the whole system could possibly be abolished and then redefined in terms of who is actually incarcerated and the need to incarcerate people at all. Right. But again, having said that, you don't acknowledge, you, you must acknowledge the fact that those who have gone or, or still are going undergoing this horrible situation, sometimes miracles can happen. And we just want to acknowledge that we're not necessarily, we are not at all saying that um, prison is a good thing at all. Uh, right. And and that's where the tension lies that you act right. and the balance lies. But there are so many individuals who have, have experienced what we call this disorienting dilemma from Mesero and adult education, right? Adult learning, adult transformative learning that undergo this while in the prison cell, while in this horrific situation. And we would be, I think, dismissive and not looking at the reality if we did not acknowledge these kinds of transformations that are not um, infrequent. Right, right. And um, so, so uh, uh, Joni, you mentioned in your book, um, uh, you in, in your book, you you uh, discuss together the experiences of people who were imprisoned for political crimes, such as Antonio Gramsci, the famous um, uh, a radical for, in in Italy, and Nelson Mandela in in South Africa, of course. Um, and you combine their experiences with uh, people who are imprisoned for uh, murder and drug offenses in the United States. And I'm just wondering. Um, uh, how do you see the connection between the experiences of people who are coming from very different you know, paths, so to speak? Yes. Uh, another great question. Um, um, Jack Henry Abbott, who is a murderer, right? Um, yeah. Well, we're, because we are not looking at why the person is in prison. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to look at the prison experience itself and how that experience has the potential, whoever the prisoner is and for whatever reason, um, that there we see this commonality through it of trans- adult transformation. And whether whatever the crime, whatever the reason, that's not the point of the book. So, uh, and we are all we make the we, we come from the perspective that we are all prisoners of something, huh? All of us. Maybe not. We we don't experience physical incarceration, or maybe we do. Um, but we have prisoners of something, and so that the 
prisoner and this experience has something to teach all of us as human beings. Right. And uh, John, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the famous uh, people that you discuss in your book who were in prison. And I'm wondering in particular if any of them reflected on their prison experience and, and talked about, you know, some of the benefits, let's say, that they derived from that experience. Okay. Uh, a couple of uh, people come to mind, and both of these individuals were actually in prison for purposes of uh, crimes uh, that they were, con- people, uh, crimes that they, they're convicted of. Uh, probably the most obvious uh, person uh, to bring up that we touched upon in our book would be Malcolm X. Uh, he was somebody who comes from the traditional perspective of uh, someone who committed a number of, uh, who broke the law, as opposed to a Mandela or, or a Frankel, uh, perhaps. And looking at uh, individuals of like, you know, like Malcolm X, even to a certain extent, Asada Shakur, uh, Chester Hines comes to mind also because all of these individuals were um, textbook uh, individuals from the inner city who did, in fact, you know, come foul, run afoul of the law in some form of fashion that, you know, some, some breaking of the penal code, be it burglary, robbery, what have you. These individuals were somehow able to use the trauma of the incarceration experience with their fellow prisoners, many of their fellow prisoners did not, were not able to tap into the experience. And this is a, a, a reality that, that we have today, which is the reason why we do see, feel that in some form of fashion, we need to revamp our system. But those who are still within the system and, uh, and those who were like Malcolm X, Chester Hines, Asada Shakur, folks along those lines, these are individuals who are able to use, who are able to take the horrible disadvantage and the trauma and the horror of being locked up in a cell and to somehow to turn this and to hone this in a way where they were able to revisit their entire lives, look into themselves, redefine themselves, take a much deeper and, and uh, if you will, a much more daring, you know, look inside to see what this was about themselves that they could actually uh, redefine and change in such a way where they themselves and then perhaps even sharing, sharing these uh, um, new definitions and sharing these revelations with the world uh, so that the world could even be better for it. I very much, very, very much related to, to, to them, you know, in my own transformation. And, and um, I think that the, that would be the way that I would answer that question in terms of being able to look at all three of these individuals and see just how they were able to turn their minus into a plus that continued long after their release. Right, right. And uh, Joni, you talk about transformative learning. What is transformative learning uh, and, and how does it play out in the context of prison? Well, it comes from Freire, right? Paulo Freire. And um, the idea that we, well, we make connections with our own personal lives and that learning is never unconnected with our own lives. And uh, it, it comes from adult education and the idea that as adults, we um, come with background experience and that often we encounter um, a disorienting dilemma, if you will, that shakes our lives up, whether that's divorce or whether that's the loss of a loved one. And in this case, we 
call prison and the prison experience a disorienting dilemma that then is a catalyst for a reevaluation of ourselves and whether that emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, in all facets, very holistic, the, the, the use of our body, you know, our, how we uh, treat our bodies, a whole new um, examination of ourselves. And then we change. We change our cognitive schemata, our way of looking at the world, our perception of the world, um, that changes. And so it's a very um, holistic, dynamic way of looking at learning. Right. And, and uh, John, uh, what is prisonization and the inmate code? And how do these relate to transformative learning in prison? Prisonization is a national policy or theory, if you will, that talks that, that focuses on the fact that you need within the correction system compliance. You want the consumers in corrections facilities to make sure that they obey. So this concept of prisonization is actually a process that tends to neutralize the individuality of each individual that is incarcerated. They want to make sure that everybody complies and does basically the same thing. It is basically designed so that the individuals will follow a certain regimen that is basically uh, in conflict often with the individual that wants to redefine themselves and to express the individuality, even if it's a positive endeavor. So this whole concept of prisonization is an administrative uh, tactic or an administrative uh, move that is designed basically to make sure that individuals do not go out of their way to do things that are contrary to the general policies. In step with that is a policy or is also a uh, culture that is designed by the prisoners themselves, and that is called the inmate code. And the inmate code is basically a concept that once you enter the prison situation, you are very, very much expected to follow both policies. The inmate code has to do with uh, making sure that you mind your own business, that you don't rat on anybody, that you don't, ratting is, of course, a U.S. term that means that you're not going to uh, tell on someone if they're doing something that's wrong or doing something that's against the, the uh, official prison rules. You're going to make sure that you uh, uh, stand up for yourself and you're go if, if you're going to be confronted by uh, other prisoners, you have to show that you are uh, strong. You're not going to fraternize with uh, the uh, officers for whatever reason. You're not going to be uh, friendly with anybody that is uh, that, that is as a part of the uh, prison management. And anybody who is seriously involved in the business of transforming their lives, many times their decisions will often run contrary to this concept of prisonization and sometimes the inmate code. So the idea of transforming oneself in the light of having to deal with this whole prisonization process and sometimes also the inmate code, that turns out to be a very, very brave act on the part of the person who was trying to change themselves and redefine themselves. 
Right. That that's so interesting. So basically what you just said is that there's a real pressure from the prison administration. You could think of that sort of as a top-down pressure and then also a bottom-up pressure from within the 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 culture, the society, the group of of people who are incarcerated to not change, to not carry on, uh, you know, uh, uh, and engage in a real life uh, transforming process. So there's a lot of pressure against the kind of transformation and learning that you are, you know, uh, highlighting. Exactly. Very accurate. Yes. Wow. Well, that that really does put into perspective just how monumental it is for the individuals who are able to achieve this kind of transformation against so many odds. I mean, for anyone to transform their life in a positive direction is obviously a difficult thing. Everyone who's taken on a diet, you know, in uh, um, you know uh, the January and dropped it two weeks later, you know, we, we know that personal transformation of any kind could be very challenging. But what you're describing are real structural impediments in the way of uh, an individual who is incarcerated to 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 uh, go through this transformation. Um, one of the 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 ways that or the the programs that you describe that do help with this transformation are college education programs and i'm wondering joni could you tell us a little bit about why people who are incarcerated join prison education programs well they they uh, want to learn they want to um, engage their time they are intellectually curious Many of them are organic, what we call organic intellectuals, that they have gone on their own uh, regimen of reading and writing. Many write novels and short stories and plays in prison. They read volumes, whatever is in the prison library, what is available to them. So when there's an opportunity to engage in any outside classes, and this is maybe a good time to, to say the Pell Grant is being restored, and that's a whole uh, another issue that we talk about in the book, but now that it's being restored to prisoners and, and they're able to get the Pell Grant, which is a, is a huge grant in America that allows people to uh, pay for college and get college credit, um, we, we will hopefully see many, many more college programs in the prisons. And this is both a stepping stones to when they come out to have a college degree for employment, number one. But even more than that, I'd say, in the, although the employment is really, really, really important, is this idea that it, tra again, transforms us intellectually, right? And uh, that um, to engage in this barred pr prison college program is, is one of the most famous ones in America. And um, it is very successful. Uh, prisoners learn a foreign language, learn numbers of languages. They study just uh, as hard and as rigorously as any other student outside. Um, it is an opportunity um, to, again, 
engage transformation in a huge way and then to prepare them for the outside world. And we have seen numbers of people then um, when they come out with that degree, um, be able to do amazing things in the world. Right. I just want to mention parenthetically, you talked about students who are incarcerated learning foreign languages. And I remember um, I spent two years teaching college courses in prison. I was teaching sociology courses, but uh, uh, many of the students, uh, because they were in um, uh, uh, college credit programs, were taking foreign language courses, including sign language. And there's something so visually striking about seeing uh, people who are incarcerated, who are wearing in, in the New Jersey state prisons, uh, kind of tan um, jumpsuits or pants and shirts and walking, you know, down the prison corridors, signing to each other, you know, and, and just seeing people, um, you know, developing uh, uh, new language skills and language interests in, in a place that you don't ordinarily associate with new language acquisition and new uh, uh, intellectual endeavors. And it was, I mean, just visually, you could see the people, you know, signing to each other uh, is really very striking. And amazing. Yes, yes, yes. So, John, um, I'm wondering what role does race and gender play in the experiences of transformative learning in prison? It plays a monumental role, actually. You know, it is one of the uh, major uh, aspects of uh, our discussions when we speak about uh, mass incarceration. Even critical race theory plays a, a, a significant role when we're talking about uh, the impact of uh, race and gender, because right now, of the 1.8 million people who are incarcerated in the United States, um, an unfair percentage of these individuals are uh, people of color. And um, interestingly enough, right now, women, although women represent a small percentage of the number of people who are incarcerated in the United States, they happen to be the fastest growing uh, population subset that we have, uh, women as well as uh, our uh, elderly. So they also, so it figures very, very prominently, you know, um, in terms of the fact that they are the population that's represented, even more importantly, how they got there. Because in that sense, you have to look at some of the uh, social dynamics and some of the institutions that tie in to why there is this major disparity and why you have right now 12% of the population in our country are, are Black people. However, we're, closing, we're talking about nearly 40% of the people who are incarcerated are, are, are also black. So we have three times as many people that should be represented in, inside our system right now who are black and females. When you start talking about women, especially when you're talking about women of color, then you're talking about an intersectionality of two different kinds of discrimination. So these factors figure very prominently in our discussions when we're talking about uh, individuals who are incarcerated, even more so in terms of uh, how to reform our prisons and how to reform society so that this disparity uh, gets uh, diminished and hopefully a, a one day eliminated. Right, right. And uh, Joni, you talk 
uh, about uh, 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 solitude and how solitude sometimes plays a role in the transformative um, um, uh, um, growth experience. And I'm wondering, what was the original hope of solitary confinement in American prisons and how has it turned out uh, in, in reality? Yeah, in the early days in American prisons with the Quakers, the idea was that solitude would help people to reform and to uh, have redemption and have quiet and to think about what they had done and to um, bring some sort of um, redemption from solitude. Well, it didn't turn out that way. Of course, it became a form and still is a form of, of torture. And um, so this is not the kind of solitude that we are talking about in the book. We do have a chapter on sitting with yourself, cells of silence and solitude. We are not talking, of course, about that uh, and what it became, but we're talking about the, the actual idea, though, that people do have more opportunity for silence and solitude, uh, even within large prisons. And that um, these are these are things that help people become deep thinkers and do deep work. Uh, I know in sitting in in the prison writing groups with the students, the, those students are able to somehow focus and go deep into the work and the writing and the homework assignments that we did the reading that my college students who seem to be more distracted with uh, technology and other things didn't seem to have that um, that ability to do deep work that solitude and silence can provide. And uh, prisoners, uh, if they use it, um, they um, it, 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 it does a deep work in them. Right. And by the way, please. solitude as opposed to isolation. Yes. Okay, so could, could you expand on that a little? What, what, what do you see as the difference between those two? Well, as Tony mentioned, isolation is, in fact, a, uh, a, a tool that in, in, induces torture. It induces an uh, uncomfortable environment. It's something where you are just totally separated from everybody else, and you're not really using that. That, uh, that, that was what the original... The goal of the Quakers, as you mentioned, was solitude. However, the, what it actually turned out to be was isolation, which, which is basically not being able to utilize the, the fact that you are alone and, 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 and the quiet, you know, in any kind of a positive way. What makes our book and what makes these individuals that we talk about so, so special is that they were somehow able to use the isolation component of incarceration and were able to turn that into a holistic positive. And that's, where, and that's what solitude actually is, where you're actually able to take the isolation of incarceration and you're able to somehow able to hone that and to, and to, and to turn that in a, in a way where you're looking more into yourself as opposed to the stark uh, realities of your environment. And you're in a place now where you're able to get deeper into yourself, a deeper thinking situation. And, and the solitude aspect of this is what is the seed, what becomes the seed of the transformation. And sometimes it begins or, or, is, is, or is cultivated from the initial point of isolation, which if you're not a special individual or if you're not a person who can really uh, take this mind's turn to a plus, it can be and continue to be nothing but a source of torture for you, a source of a very, very negative outcome 
uh, as opposed to turning it into a solitude situation. Right. I'm just wondering if you have any sense of, like, like, is there is there something that we could point to that about the individual people who are able to to make this kind of transformation, who are able to take what is or could be a kind of paralyzingly terrible situation and 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 as you say kind of dig deep in within themselves and turn it around and those who are not like is there any i mean i know i don't know that if there's been any kind of scientific study about these different people but is there any sense about like what kind of people either in terms of their background or their psychological makeup their gender their i don't know any aspect of them that we could say well people in that category tend to be able to to do this transformative work and that a lot of other people they they really can't i mean it's just the the physical uh, uh or a psychological uh, uh situation is so uh horribly oppressive that they're not able to make this kind of transformation you know what i mean yeah, yeah, no, it's an it's an excellent question. I don't know if we have a definitive answer for that. <laughs> right. However, um, from observation, <clears throat> I would say that <clears throat> sometimes it, it from what for what uh, people have told me is that it doesn't always happen the first time. Sometimes people are incarcerated more than once, and they finally come to a realization that they don't want this anymore. So. Um, it becomes, it's maybe a process of, of, of coming to understand that there maybe is something else and that I don't have to live this way. And I don't know how that comes about um, for certain people and doesn't for others. That's a magic question, right? But, but I think there is a process that people go through from what they have told me that, <clears throat> that it doesn't happen all at once, but they come to realize, well, wait a minute, I don't want this. Even if I spend 25 years in prison, I don't want this to be my road. I don't want this to be. And so there is some sort of mm, decision of switching, of of deciding perhaps. Right, right. John, I please. I've certainly found no commonality whatsoever if you're looking at it from a standpoint of criminal justice. Our book pretty much exemplifies that. We have everybody all across the board, people who had committed no crimes with people who committed uh, capital murder. What that tells me, especially having seen individuals that have, as soon as they come home from prison and they're trying to re-socialize, I've seen individuals who've committed nonviolent crimes. I've seen people who've committed violent crimes. And you just, uh, uh, people who have had a long-term substance abuse, you never really know who it is that's going to get that aha moment, whether they are, you know, incarcerated or as soon as they come home. But that tells me, though, is that we need to always keep the doors open in terms of resources. Because as Joni said, it might be the first time and it might be the second time. It might be, uh, you know, uh, a uh, disorienting a li- dilemma on the outside or the inside that causes them to finally t- uh, do the uh, do do the uh, soul searching work. But you always want to have the availability of things like college uh, availability, uh, going into the classroom, counseling, 
substance abuse treatment, aggression replacement therapy, whatever it takes for that individual to, 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 to begin to redefine him or herself, they must always be available because you just don't know. You know, I've seen some amazing transformations of people that you would normally look at and look at their background and say, nah, I, I, guess, I guess she's comfortable being where she is. And then and, and next thing you know, they're doing some amazing things. So we just always have to always have these resources open. And it's also a strong argument for taking another good hard look at the system as we know it today within the U.S. prison system. Right. Sure. And um, Joni, you mentioned the term organic intellectual. What is uh, an organic intellectual and how does this uh, uh, concept relate to college education in prison? Yeah. Well, it comes from Gramsci and um, it, it is the idea that you don't have formal education right um or you may or may not have it it's in the, the informal intellectual who chooses on their own again to educate themselves such as as we talk about in the book we talk about malcolm x right he's he's the classic organic intellectual right who taught himself in a his reading and um, and went on a, a regimen of reading and educating himself. So in many ways, you will find uh, individuals in prisons who have educated themselves with what was available in the library, what they shared with each other, their writing, their think time. And they have uh, some in terms of also combining it with the body and going on a regimen of, 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 of honing their body and being very uh, healthy and uh, toned. So the body-mind connection. And they've taken this seriously, uh, developing themselves intellectually, spiritually. Many are very spiritual and, and have delved into, uh, you know, the, the, the Bible or the Quran or, 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 or other books that will develop their spirituality. So this connection. But there are people who have taken the development of their mind and their body and their spirit seriously, and they have educated themselves in many ways. Um, this is an organic intellectual, and I've met quite a few of them. Right, right. And um, John, I'm wondering, what are uh, some of the basic elements that contribute to making people who are incarcerated uh, to turning them into organic intellectuals? The basic, <clears throat> we touched on one, which is, of course, their ability to try to utilize the environment that they're in and trying to somehow able to take that environment and to make it work for them. That's one very, very core element there, because as we, we, we all probably know, prisons, no matter what prison you're talking about throughout the world, they tend to be very, very noisy uh, uh, places, places that uh, have a lot of uh, horrible, bad things going on. And one of the first things that you need to do, of course, is to try to tune all that out and uh, in such a way where you're able to utilize the uh, silence and the solitude of your environment even if you have a lot of people around you and, and able to able to look into yourself. That's number one. The other thing is you have to be brave enough to take that step to look deep inside and to be totally, totally honest with oneself and to, and, 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 and to take a good look and take inventory of what's happening inside. And these are often the two major steps that, that people need to make uh, and people do make before they decide to um, 
take those first necessary steps in trying to make their lives better. And often that means while they're in, in inside the uh, prison environment to pick their company better and to make sure that they are doing things that they weren't doing before, like uh, maybe deciding that now you know, they're going to start to live a drug-free life or to live a better life in terms of what they put inside their bodies. And these are some of the things, uh, some of the first steps that, that you see are commonly taken. The inventory, looking at within themselves and forgetting the fact or, or trying to put aside the fact that they are now in a, a situation where their freedom is taken, but inside they know that they have all the freedom, all the, the uh, mental and spiritual freedom in the world to start to take a very good look at within themselves to transform themselves and to redefine themselves so that when they come out, they are uh, people who are who, who they can really feel very, very comfortable that they are now uh, individuals who really did transform their lives to, uh, for the better for themselves and for their families. Right, right. And uh, Joni, I'm wondering, what is the relationship between organic intellectuals in prison and activism? Ah, well, I think they're connected, right? I think the organic intellect, the intellectual is the social, can be the social activist uh, learner. So, and especially when they come out, right? Having had time to think about uh, the world as it is, the, the, the racism, the prison system, the injustices to understand that and make connections with themselves as part of that, um, becoming that organic intellectual. So then when and, and coming out, and even not just coming out, sometimes within prison, in, involved in activism uh, for change. You'll see many uh, prisoners uh, coming home who involve themselves in uh, the abolition of prisons, prison reform, reentry reform, Oh, many, many who are involved, who start their own organizations. Many of our most famous organizations in prison um, reentry were started by former prisoners. And so they put their feet, they have to go back and give back, right? They're the idea that because I have been given this, I understand this, I've grown, then now I have a responsibility then to give back to those who are still inside. There's that, that is a strong, strong uh, stream in, in uh, returned citizens of this idea that now I have to go back and help my brother, right? That was a very, very strong strong inspiration for our title, Gifts from the Dark, because what Joni is describing now are gifts that are now shared with the entire world. Right, sure. And uh, John, I'm wondering, in addition to intellectual growth, which we, we've been discussing, uh, is there also emotional growth that, that uh, often occurs uh, uh, within people who are in prison? In interesting... Uh, when you look, look at that too, because of the fact that uh, one of the um, aspects of prison management has to do, of course, with uh, what people internalize before they come before they come in into prison. You know, um, the deportation theory versus the import importation theory. What they import in, what kind of emotions do they have that they bring into the system? And many, many times, what will happen is that once they are inside. The prison system, and they do uh, take that very, very brave step in taking a good inventory, taking a good look at your, at yourself and what's going on inside. 
well, as you're looking at some of the baggage that uh, was a that that you brought into your value system and brought into your emotions, many many times you're able to sort out what it is that that pre- presses your buttons. What is it that makes you tick? Why is why are your emotions in such a way that they are? And you can tie them into uh, certain things that you did on the outside. It might be using drugs. It might be the fact that you have a a, a big issue with, with anger. It might be. It might have to do with the fact that you didn't have a strong uh, uh, system of uh, mentors or 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 or, 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 or family situation. You're able to look and see all these things, and when you do see what the problems were that got you where you were, many many times you will find yourself as you're trying to take the next steps in in, in fixing that. Your emotions will also slowly but surely transform as well. And 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 you're, and you're looking at things now from a from from a more of a positive perspective as your emotions begin to heal in such a way where now you're where now you're looking at things from a much more positive path. Right, right. And um, uh, Joni, what contributions do families make to those who are incarcerated? Yeah, we make the case that particularly the black family, right? When we're talking about a disproportional number of people of color and blacks in prison. And we make the case that the black family is an amazing support system for uh, all families, but can, not all, but many families can be, but black family in particular and black culture, and we, we call it black cultural privilege, right, supports this idea of of a collective, not a deficit model. Remember when we had the Moynihan report years back and there was all this pathology about the black family and this false narrative? Well, this, uh, we talk about the counter story to that, that no, this is not a deficit model, that the black family, in fact, and the black church and the black culture is extremely strong and can be an extreme support spiritually, emotionally for uh, prisoners. And so we look at it from not a deficit model, but from a, 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 a strong sense of cultural privilege. Right. I, I, I could just say on a personal note, uh, I had the honor and privilege of participating in a college graduation uh, ceremony in one of the prisons that I used to teach in. And I I was really brought to tears. I mean, just the seeing my former students, um, you know, uh, wearing green, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, graduation regalia instead of an over their you know tan um, uniforms uh, was again kind of visually and conceptually very striking but then seeing a packed house of family members parents siblings children nephews nieces who came to support their relatives who were incarcerated who were who went through a tremendous learning experience and worked so hard to gain their college diploma and seeing the family there together in the same place supporting them 
I mean, it absolutely brought tears to my eyes, and uh, it was clear that the family, this that kind of family support, meant so much to the students who were incarcerated. To know that their family loved them and looked up to them. That yes, there may have been things that they've done in their past that that were regrettable, but here were people who were trying to change their life and uh, embrace uh, education. And that they were their children and family were looking up to them. It clearly meant so much to the students who were incarcerated. Exactly. That's, that's a powerful, powerful combination. When you have the support system of your family behind you, and you have now that huge tool of a college degree, when you look down the short road the next few years, you're going to see that recidivism rate is pretty much non-existent. Right. Very, very powerful stuff. Okay, last question. There's so much more to talk about, but this will be the last question. Um, John, uh, could you tell us how does the digital divide impact those who were incarcerated? That's a very, very interesting and not often uh, discussed topic. We felt that it was very, very uh, crucial to bring up the fact that in most cases, Although it's beginning to change a little bit, where you do have a, the introduction of certain I, of, of iPads in some of the systems and some of the federal systems, the bottom line is that you have, for the most part, no kind of digital media access, you know, in most of our prisons, and that, of course, puts us in a in, in a disadvantage. puts individuals who are coming home at a disadvantage, who are now expected to uh, be able to immediately you know, go with the flow of uh, being able to uh, utilize uh, laptops and iPads and virtually whatever the profession is or whatever job you're trying to get, you're expected to have at least a rudimentary knowledge of how to access some emails and all the rest of it. At the same time, those who are unable to have access to these things, they tend to uh, supplement other aspects of their skills in, in, in such a way where they are able to turn that minus into the plus in terms of applying more depth to the work that they do do. People who want to read, people who want to uh, to write, they don't have the uh, uh, the distractions of the uh, digital divide and they're able to delve that much deeper, that much more effectively and sometimes enhancing the quality of the work that they, that they are engaged in. So when they come out, and that now they're amongst us again, which 95% of individuals who are incarcerated will, will again come back into society. They now have a uh, the benefit of knowing how to apply their thinking in a way that does, does not have that distraction of the media. And when they do acquire the digital tools, they become very, very powerful communicators. Right. So I think that's an interesting point to end off on where you could see the same kind of tension that we've been discussing throughout our conversation. On the one hand, uh, obviously, uh, uh, not having digital technology it could be a real deficit. It doesn't it, it, it ill prepares people to, to once they leave prison and, and, and reintegrate into the you know fast paced technology world that we live in. And at the same time, you're saying there are some gifts, so to speak, some benefits that these individuals obtain because of their environment and the lack of technology that they have access to. All right. Well, 
Well, we will leave it there for today. Uh, thanks so much to both of you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. It's been Thank a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, our pleasure. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.